right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Science in between. This is Scott. This is Ollie. And we're just a little, <laughs> we're a little chill today because our universities are either canceled or delayed because of yeah. snow. So we're having it's a, a, it's, it's very snowy in central Pennsylvania, which if you're not in central Pennsylvania, you're probably like, oh, what'd they get? A couple feet of snow? No, it's like yeah. two to three inches, you yeah. know? Which it's, surprisingly that it's, it is surprising to me that they would delay with such a small amount of snow, but it, you know, as they say, a lot of it's about the timing, right? Yeah. If you're like in like upstate New York or like, yeah. you know, you're, you're laughing, if you know, or out, out West someplace, like know. they're like, yeah, what like, you close for, are you close for two to three inches of snow? Yeah. yeah. Come on. Come on. If you're in Tahoe, you're, you're like two to three feet of snow maybe, but not yeah. two to three inches. Yeah, they're probably not even delaying school. You no. know, it's like or Rochester. Shout out to April Lumen up in Rochester. Oh yeah, like, nah. like they get they get real snow and they get they get real, real snow. Yeah. yeah, that is a different world, <clears throat> yeah. no doubt. Yeah. So, uh, what are we talking about what today, we ta- Scott? <laughs> well, Ollie, <laughs> today on my little memo book. Um, so what we. Th- thought we would talk about or what i thought we would talk about since it's my turn um to pick uh was return to our conversation about learning spaces um both virtual and physical and how we think about configuring classrooms whether those are online or face-to-face um to support this kind of heavy discourse discussion-based teaching that is so central to how we think about ambitious science teaching so um just to be transparent, part of the motivation for this is um, I have a uh, presentation coming up with a former student of mine, Allison D'Ambrosia, um, who's a instructional coach in, in uh, one of the one of the elementary and middle schools. I guess she goes all the way. Does she go all the way through high school? She might um, here in in uh, near me. And um, so we have a presentation at Pete and C which is Pennsylvania Educational Technology Expo and Conference. Oh, that's right. Expo and Conference, Um, which is a Pennsylvania. It's just what it sounds like in the title. It's a ed techie sort of conference here. It's a huge conference. It's, it's gigantic. It's here. It's here in Hershey. It's been in, I think it's been in Hershey for probably the last 15 or 20 years. I don't even remember, um, much beyond that, but it has been in Hershey for a long time, and it's at the Hershey Lodge and also at the um, at the convention center, and it's just like, yeah, it's a big one. So yeah. we, I have never been. Um, I'm going. Allison was interested in going to present, so she and I are going together, and we're talking about uh, learning spaces. They have a, a a flex space classroom that's being set up at the Hershey Lodge with all their furniture in it. And they were looking for folks who could take advantage of that and talk. And so, you know, so uh, explain to me like that. I've heard that term a bunch, flex. And so I well, think yeah, that is I mean, one of those ones where I hear it. I I have to stop someone and say, "Could you tell me what you mean by that?" Because yeah. like flexing, like when you talk about space versus flex, like like as a modality of instruction, that's a different you know connotation and. Yeah. So, what, well, yeah. What, in this case, it's a it's a company, and that's their name. Okay. Mm. So it's like Steelcase is sure. a furniture company. This is Flexspace is the name of the company. So, um, so it's not an academic term, but we could talk about that. I mean, I think 
I think they are, um, you know, they're the big one in, in higher ed, of course, is active learning spaces. Yeah. That's, that's been the one that's been sort of the, the, the stick that everyone's hitting people with, um, is, is active learning spaces. But I think generally speaking, the point of most of these, these initiatives or these ideas are to say, Hey, the physical space that you, that you have learning occur in has a, a really significant impact on what goes on in those spaces and how well and how people learn. Right. And so I think the idea of flex space, which is probably more been the newer one for the last say 10 or so years, 15 years, maybe, I don't know, 10 years, um, which is, you know, spaces should be in the way that we talk about discourse or talk in classrooms um, should be responsive. You should be able to move stuff move around, around. reconfigure it so that you can have different looks in the classroom. I think for those of us who work in, in technology, we, we get to the word affordance, right? That's the, yep. that's the term that we affordance use to describe. Yeah. Affordance and constraint. Cause uh, what kind what kind of learning, what kind of uh, pedagogy does that afford? And what does it constrain? And, yes, you know, like, so the affordance of like, when I always, when I use that term, I I feel like I always have to unpack it like a, like a, a chair affords yeah. sitting. Like right. it, it's hard to do other things with a chair. Right. You, you can't like use it as, I don't know, a baseball bat. You can't use it as, you know. For other things, other purposes. The purpose of right. that is designed to afford. And so what we think about when, when we think about learning spaces is to be as flexible as possible to afford lots of different ways of learning. And there are like certain learning spaces that only afford or mostly afford of learning. So if you walk yeah. into a, a classroom space that's arranged like an auditorium, like these big lecture spaces mm -hmm. that are all at Penn State, at Millersville, you know, I can remember I, I took uh, an anthropology class at Pitt that was probably had 600 students in it. Mm -hmm. 600 students were all sitting in this gigantic auditorium and we sat there passively while a, a pretty dynamic and entertaining instructor was up on a stage just you know, engaging us passively for an hour, three times a week. Yeah. So in that situation, it's really hard to think about that learning space, that learning space in any way else, except for lecture, you know, delivery, you know? And so I think the, the way that designers are trying to think about this now, at least from a physical standpoint is let's try to afford lots of different ways of learning so that people can, you know, an instructor or even students, if they're working independently, can come into that space and say, okay, let's move around the chairs, let's move around the whiteboards, mm -hmm. let's do all of this thing so that we can do something else besides sitting passively. Um, but the challenge with that, I think, is that um, a lot of people don't have that type of experience with spaces. Right. They walk into it and they're like, hey, I, I don't know what to do here. And sometimes, you know, especially with people who have lots of experience learning in passive learning environments when they walk into a, a situation in which there's just, I don't want to say call it chaos because to them it, it may be chaos mm. uh, because it's like, well, hold on. There's no tables there or the tables are all stacked up or they have wheels. No, what do I do with these wheels? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, I think that, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, um, I mean, one advantage, I guess we can talk about it, that science classes have is they typically do have 
lab area. So not always. And obviously there's huge differences across uh, different schools and different resource schools. But oftentimes science classrooms have aspects of this kind of flexibility or at least modality where you can say like, oh, go back to the lab benches because we're going to do a lab and then come back to your seats and we're going to do something else. Um, a lot of uh, classrooms in other domain areas, um, maybe art is another exception, but, you know, English, math, social studies classes, they they pretty much are desks in rows um, in, in almost every context, whereas science and art and uh, at least have some of that like, oh, we're sitting at tables together or there are lab benches that you can move around or there are lab benches around the exterior of the classroom that you can move to and um, go back and forth. So I think that's one advantage that science has is is it its classrooms already have a certain amount of flexibility built into them. Yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time in uh, a middle school in this Con Conestoga Valley School District. Um, this is in central Pennsylvania, Lancaster County. Mm -hmm. And they just built this brand new school. Uh, they opened last fall. So they're about a year into this space. And uh, as a middle school, they have these different teams. So they've really bought into the middle school concept. So mm -hmm. you have like a red team, a green team for the seventh and eighth. So the sixth, seventh, and eighth. This is a sixth, seventh, eighth building. Um, but what's really cool about the, the space is that uh, they have taken the flexibility concept and just like really put it on steroids because not only are individual classrooms, you know, very flexible and 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 I would say that the seating themselves are pr is pretty novel because they have all of these like everything's on wheels and they have yeah. lots of different kinds of seats and they have not they don't have square tables everything's p shaped which oh, you know yeah, like there you go right the mm -hmm. the p shape because yeah. and I don't know what the you know the science is behind the the p shaped tables but there must be something somebody has you know looked yeah. into you know, why the P shaped, because it, it can create some, you know, like floral shaped tables because uh -huh. like you can wheel them together so that the one part fits in. I don't even know. Maybe it's called clamshell. I don't even know. It's like whether it's P or a clamshell or whatever it's called. Um, but beyond that, the actual walls of the classroom themselves can be removed and you could have all of the team classrooms joined together. Mm. Like in a wing so that you could pull all like yeah. open. That's like an open yes. concept sort of school, which life. goes yeah. back to like the 1950s. Right. Yeah. It goes yeah. back way to the 1950s, which, you know, which the, the a school I worked at was a building that they had converted from that. So there was all of these, you know, makeshift walls that we all built. Right? Mm -hmm. Like it yeah. was like, oh, let's put our bookshelves over there to kind of make a wall yep. or like, yep. and it's not, not really a wall, but then you could hear the neighbor. Sure. That, yeah. So they have a lot of retractable walls between, you know, the five or six classrooms that make up a team, which mm -hmm. itself is I think really novel. It is, I would say one of the things, one of the misnomers about learning space is that if you built the learning space, that it's going it, to impact pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Sure. That, and I think that's the mistake that lots of people make is that the technology will drive pedagogy. Yeah. Like technology, and I'm talking technology, you know, very inclusively. Yeah. Because technology, we we assume that it's just stuff we plug into the wall, but these are this is technology too. Mm -hmm. You know, a a classroom, a table, a 
whiteboard. These are all technologies. They're just not digital technologies. Right. Yeah. And I, well, I can remember back in my early days when I was much more of a tech ed tech person um, than I am now, uh, there was a, um, a company called Scott Snyder that made educational software and they had a book. And in the book, one of the things they had were quotes about different technologies over the history of education and how they were going to tra- completely transform classrooms. And of course, some of the technologies that they made that statement about were things like the blackboard, the phonograph, the magic lantern, which is the overhead projector, like all these, all these things that when they first came out, people are like, Oh my gosh, this is going to completely transform. And of course we know now though, people still fall into the same trap that, that that's not the way it works, that pedagogy is much more complicated than the technology it uses. So, um, so just changing out the furniture is not going to change the pedagogy, as you say, like, that's like, uh, thinking that if when you put an interactive whiteboard in the classroom, it's suddenly going to make yes. a huge difference. It's like, actually, no, of course it's not, because that's not what changes pedagogy. Um, you know, we talk about all the time what does change pedagogy, and it's long, difficult struggles of experimenting and learning and having new values and goals rather than just like – now, once those values and goals are in place, having those technologies can be incredibly powerful, but – that you can't get the technology, at least we haven't done it yet, as far as I know, uh, get the technology to drive those values. It has to be the other way around. So, um, so I think thinking about these kinds of learning spaces and, and, and what value they have, these flex spaces or whatever, um, you know, to me, I think that the core piece of it that has potential is just like with pedagogy, the idea that the learning environment should be responsive to the needs of the learners um, is makes sense. We talk about it in terms of the way that we talk with kids and being responsive, but having an, an actual physical environment that can be responsive to kids and to the instructor makes a lot of sense. It, it means there is a lot of potential to support interesting things happening in the classroom. I think the challenge with that, and I'm on board completely with that. Yeah. The challenge with that is that we, you and I, when we think about learning spaces, we're, we're not just thinking about physical environments. We're thinking about virtual or digital spaces sure. too. Yeah. And I think the challenge, and this is sort of what, like how this whole podcast thing came to be, yeah, for is sure. that we were thrust into a virtual learning environment and we had, we were contacted individually by lots of science folks that we work with were like, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. I don't know how to teach science in a virtual space that is either true to the way they believe science should learn or, you know, reflective of the standards or meeting Mm -hmm. the students' needs or however those conversations played out. And it's even more so now whenever we have, you know, this where we're trying to advance AST, ambitious science teaching, as a way of teaching science that's not just reflective of the new science standards in our state or the, you know, the next generation science standards nationally, but also being very responsive to the learners that they're working with, Mm -hmm. you know, and and also uh, driving a form of science Mm -hmm. learning that we know works. And we also know that's reflective of science as practice versus science as content. Yep. 
Yeah. All those things. Right. And yeah, I think, you know, I, I can remember, we should probably go back and listen to some of those early episodes, but I can remember being, I don't want to say optimistic, but more optimistic about the possibilities of doing this stuff in virtual environments when we were first starting. I mean, there are so many tools that we thought would scaffold those experiences, right? So the Zoom being one example that we thought in those initial days, oh yeah, well, I mean, video isn't as good as being present, but it's probably pretty good. Well, it turns out it's not nearly as good as we hoped for a whole host of reasons. Um, And there were other tools that were productive and helpful, Um, things like Google Docs, which allows people to share things like data or or explanations and work collaboratively together at a distance. I think those without those tools, what happened during the pandemic would have been a lot worse in terms of the quality of instruction. Ah. Um, But that said, it was a lot worse than being in class together. And I don't think there's really much doubt about that. Um, so I think, you know, learning spaces, both physical and digital are important and the digital tools right now still are nascent in terms of their ability to support the kind of interactions that we really think are necessary for, for good science instruction. Anyway, Yeah. And, and, and by that, just to make sure we're unpack this and be as inclusive as possible, we're talking right. about, you know, learning management systems like Canvas and, you know, Google Classroom or Schoology, all of those afford a different type of learning that is not the type of collaborative sense-making space that, I mean, it's, it's, it's really well designed. They're all well designed. So I'm I'm not knocking Schoology. I'm not knocking Canvas or we use D2L at at Millersville. Mm -hmm. I'm not knocking any of those because I think that, they're all well designed, but I think what they are designed for is a different type of it's it's asynchronous. It, most of it affords asynchronous instruction. Zoom yeah. does synchronous instruction, but still it has its own challenges and constraints that mm-hmm. and some of those were not built into the built into the actual technology. It's how people respond to the technology because we found that like, hey, you know what? Students don't respond well to six hours of Zoom a day. Yeah. Yeah. That well, that whole it, Zoom fatigue was a thing. Right. And it's still a thing. Yeah. And well, it turns out that, you know, learning theory is baked into all the tools we use when we're doing learning, right? And teaching. So, you know, it's baked into physical spaces when we see those giant auditoriums with this with the chairs bolted down and the and the tablet arms. And they think a big innovation is to put a tablet arm on both sides so you have a bigger desk space, right? It's like, whoa. (laughs) Um, So, you know, and that those same underlying notions of how people learn got baked into things like Canvas and Blackboard and Design to Learn and all of the other platforms. And, you know, Zoom, like people didn't design Zoom, especially initially, because Zoom was designed for corporate, I think, largely corporate environments. You know, it was not designed to support learning. It was really designed to be a video telephone. Um, so that's a very different thing, right? Than than saying we want a synchronous platform that actually supports learning in productive and responsive ways. Like that's a whole different thing than saying we want a communication device that allows people to see each other while they're talking to each other. 
Like those two design parameters are quite different and lead to different tools, presumably, though we, as far as I know, we've never had a tool that was explicitly designed from the ground up to support the kind of instruction we're talking about in a digital space. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think if you were, you and I were to develop Zoom or, or revise or, you know, change Zoom in a way. Like what were some of the ways? Because I mean, I think we both hmm. believe if we're going to do a- AST or you know science instruction in that sort of vein, that Zoom is close, but it's not there yet. Yeah, and so there, I think one of the things that there needs to be more opportunities for like plugins for students to be able to manipulate things together. Yeah, in in a, like whether it's a simulation or whatever that they can themselves, because right now, like, and I, I understand this is, you know, from a security standpoint, you know, the instructor's got to give permissions to people, but only permission that people really get is sharing their screen or sharing, you know, some very limited abilities. Mm -hmm. And, and so what needs to happen is there's got to be more, I want to say sandbox playground space for people to be able to, and what goes on in those sandbox playground space has got to expand. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I think what makes face-to-face one of the things that makes face-to-face interactions more powerful is you have a lot more um, ability to change modes and share and communicate in different ways because it's a very high bandwidth environment. Right. Um, And I do think, yeah, it's starting to think about how would you integrate more tools into Zoom in a seamless way. I mean, one of the one of the problems with all of these things, and this is this goes back to like computer interfaces and and iPad or or touch interfaces, is this latency or lag problem, right? Like even if you get the integrated tools, you also have to have really good bandwidth in between right. these people because otherwise, like I'm starting to draw something and you can't tell because there's latency. There's a there's a lag before it shows up on your screen. And so you start drawing something and now we're both drawing something in the same place. And you're like, oh, sorry, Ollie, I'm going to move mine over here. Or you start typing something and somebody else is typing something. And so that. that and we all we see that already. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, you and I were in a meeting last night with, with a colleague who was driving in like upstate New York or something. And they yeah. were like way far away from really good internet or Wi-Fi, right. And, yeah. you know, it was very laggy and it was like, uh, we can't, and they were not even using their, you know, camera at right. all. Yeah. 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 And so and that so just that's compounds. At, yeah. Yeah. It compounds whenever you start to think that, okay, we want them to work in some sort of collaborative way beyond just talking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. It, 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 I think it, it really points out um, how uh, important all of the, the subtle things are in, in learning environments between multiple people, like how you look at facial expressions and body position and all this, you get so much information from so many places that you take for granted until that stuff's gone. And, you know, people are like, Oh, well, zoom is pretty similar, but it is and isn't even even in these environments where it's pretty good, you still do have latency and lag and problems like that. And it only gets compounded when you've got bigger classes, right? If you've got 30 or 40 people, now you have a much different bandwidth problem than you did when it's just two people. So so the scaling of it, there's so many problems that, um, you know, keep us away from from a really, you know, sort of seamless 
personal experience when you're when you're doing online learning synchronously. I, I think the other thing beyond the collaboration and the you know the technical issues around the, the the challenges with collaboration in real time is the the possibilities and pitfalls around giving students or giving participants more agency. Mm. Because agency is a big concept for us, right? Yep. It's a Absolutely. it's a big. We we believe that students need to have more agency. I mean, they have it. What we just have to uh, design for it, or yep. you know, provide more space for them to tap into their agency. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no agency in in you know Zoom or you know a learning management system. We give them very s- small. Hey, here's a breakout room. You can talk and. But that's about it. They could yeah. we define when they can go into a breakout room or when they can come out of a breakout room. We give them permission to share their screen or pull it away. But there's really very little opportunities for them to even communicate with other students in the classroom without us giving them permission. Like they can yeah. chat off off the side, but even that is is very limited. Yeah. Well, and if you think about that compared to what happens in a regular classroom, I mean, in a regular classroom, you put kids in groups and and you can seamlessly move around and listen and you can be standing yeah. next to one group and listening to another group and you can do all this sort of nuanced work as a teacher. If you're in a Zoom room environment, like you send people off into a, a breakout room, you have no idea what they're doing. Like, yeah. And that for many teachers, that's a scary notion. Like I'm going to put five kids in a room together and they can talk about whatever they want and I don't have any notion of what's going on there. I mean, talk about an interface thing that you could think about in Zoom. Like, is there a way to have it so the teacher sees like the clusters of students as small little Zoom windows that they can see all of the breakout rooms simultaneously, for example? What an interesting thing that would be and be able to switch channels so that you could hear what's going on in different rooms very quickly. Right. Like that, Or just an- like see like like the little know the sound yeah you know pattern the, the little right. like and you can say waveforms. okay like yeah. waveforms right and you can say okay well there's a lot going on in this room maybe i just listen in to on that one you know? yeah so like some sort of visual representation of what's going on in those spaces for you to be as a teacher go okay i'm i'm seeing there's not a lot of conversation going on in breakout room number three i'm going to jump in and just see what's going on yeah and that that's just one example of of a big difference between, you know, what we think of as being, oh, these are basically the same as face-to-face. Well, they're not basically no. the same as face-to-face. And they're they're barely halfway, right? Because of so much of this stuff that changes as um as the as bandwidth and 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 again, platform structure. Like that Zoom is designed so that you send people into breakout rooms and you don't see them. Well, that in corporate environments, that makes perfect sense. Like, who cares? Like, I'm going to send, I'm going to send the design team off into their own breakout room and bring them back in in 20 minutes. That's a very sensible way to operate in a corporate environment. In a school environment, that's a completely bananas way to operate. To say we're just going to break kids into rooms and send them off into their own private space and say good luck. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it, it is it is the case that. If you want to have environments like this, whether they're virtual or physical, that are responsive, that are more flexible, that do all these things, you have to think about them as learning spaces first and then design them, not say, oh, we're going to go pull this thing off the shelf and apply it to a classroom because classrooms are just like every other 
corporate or business environment, and therefore we should just be able to use them. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. I think the the, the problem is that a, a technology company goes, okay, I have this thing. Yep. Here's another market I can go into, and yeah. education being this this gigantic market for tools. And I think you'll see that. That's one of the places where, you know, if you go to ISTE, which is, you know, the big technology national organization, um, if you go to one of their conferences or you go to Pete and C, which the E is Expo, and that Expo yep. is a big part of its DNA, yep. um, there are people who are there to sell their wares. And yep. some of them are native technology, uh, educational technology companies companies that are focused on education and some of them are not some of them are like i'm working in this other space and oh well, i can you know put a little window dressings on us and call yeah. it a ed tech thing and open up a sauce. new market yeah. a little special sauce and so there's nothing about learning theory that's baked into the technology it's just something that or if there is it is not a a learning perspective that really would match the way that you and I see from a social cultural pr perspective. Right. Yeah. I think that's the, I mean, I think both things are true. It, they don't consider learning theory at all, which by default means that the learning theory approach that they take is a more cognitive and, right. and slash behaviorist point of view, right? Because that's the one that's baked into our system now. And so if you're looking for things that are going to change um, the social dynamic of classrooms, technology probably is not a great place to look because most of those technologies are not designed with that kind of stuff in mind. They're designed with the more traditional notions of what it means to learn. So therefore, they're going to they're going to take that perspective. I mean, I think more and more we're going to see we see this in education already, obviously, but emerging of the textbook industry with the technology industry, because, you know, the first phase of that was just like, okay, we're not going to sell you a physical textbook anymore. We're going to sell you a platform that is a textbook and your kids can log in on their Chromebooks and read all the stuff and they can take quizzes online and they can do all this. So basically it's, so, it's becoming like a, a sort of lightweight version of a uh, learning management system like Canvas or something, which is like, it's just a textbook. And then, the, and from the other direction, you're getting a similar push. So eventually these companies are going to sort of merge into this one big thing, but all of them, both textbooks and as you said, the current uh, LMSs are all predicated on this notion that like, I'm an individual sitting in front of a computer that can just read text or watch a video or interact with some thing and then respond to it in some way that goes into the learning management system that then at some point in the future down the road can be responded to by my instructor so that I get feedback on that, right? And all of that is not what we're hoping for. And also the part that's baked into it is this idea that we have to monitor students mm. and that and what's not monitoring from the standpoint of monitoring learning or it's mm. monitoring learning from a very cognitive perspective but it's also monitoring students from like you know their access where they're accessing from how long they're i mean with some of that is is some of its data that's important yeah but i think what it does is it affords an over-reliance on that data or a misuse of that data. And, and yeah. And in some ways it's, it's, we're like spying on. Kids. Yeah. It's surveillance. That's what that, it's, I, and I think a surveillance culture 
in digital spaces for learning is is really challenging. It's really hard for me to square. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's toxic in any environment, right? And because you know, it's it's the panopticon. It's Foucault's notion of like it, you if you think you're always being watched, you behave differently than than uh, than if you don't. Um, and in digital spaces, I mean, increasingly. And I, and I think that, you know, again, it goes back to the built-in learning systems. Like with Zoom, if if the prob- if the initial problem is like, oh, we put kids in breakout rooms and we're worried about what they'll talk about, instead of saying, well, what's a learning response to that? Which I think hopefully my response is, which is like, well, what if we could see all of them and yeah. at the same time and sort of move seamlessly between them? Well, what probably is is the typical response is, well, we're either going to not put kids in rooms or if we do, we're going to lock down those rooms so they can't share their screen and they can't do anything because we don't want them doing anything illicit or bad. And then we're also going to record in those spaces and maybe do transcribing so that we can keep track of what they're doing so that we, if they do something wrong, we can punish them later. It's like, wow. So that's that's yeah. where we head is towards this like locking down of the environment. And to your point earlier, taking away agency from kids, like surveilling them and, and, and watching so that we can punish as opposed to saying, well, what's going on in those spaces and how can we support positive learning? Yeah. I think that um, anytime Panopticon is brought into a conversation, <laughs> you know, I just think that, you know, it's, it blows my mind. Cause I go, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what our current learning spaces, a lot of our learning spaces are designed to be. Yeah, for sure. Especially like learning management systems, especially, you know, tools like Zoom or, you know, what's what's the Microsoft Teams? Yeah, Teams. It's like they're designed to be panopticons. Yeah. 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 So, which, which is not where we planned to end up no, today. No. So once again, we've descended into the darkness. Um, well, it's what I what I appreciate. Here's here's what I appreciate is that you and I have been working together for what seventeen years, eighteen years, yeah, 18, something like that. Yeah, some, yeah. So you and I have been working together since the like really the dawn of of some of these learning management systems. I mean, we. Our first work together, we had a, a Moodle. Yeah. Remember, we created, yeah, we, we brought sure. Mo- like a, we had to set up a Moodle uh, at Penn State. We had to work with people to get a Moodle set up there, right? I think, yeah, that, yeah, because yeah, so we had to get like somebody to dedicate like server space so we could put a Moodle together there because yeah. we thought that it would be a little bit more. This is good for, for those of you who are not in the tech world. Moodle was like a pre, does it even still exist? I don't even know. Oh, that's a good question. I think it probably does, but maybe not. It's a wiki based system, right? Yes. So multiple it was, it, editors, but serially editing. So like Ali and I couldn't edit at the same time. Yeah. So we had a hand off, like who right. was, who was editing, but it was, it was, a little bit more of a collaborative learning space yeah. than just what was existing at the time. And so at that time, you and I were so optimistic as to what the the future of technology was going to be yeah. and specifically around technology for learning. And, you know, this was before the iPad. It was before, you know, any of these really, because it was at the dawn of Web 2.0 and yeah. it was like, okay, it's going to democratize education. It's going to democratize yeah. learning and what it means to be an author and contributor and 
it's going to give so much agency to individual learners. It was just going to be this powerful thing for good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was like, I can remember 2007 when the first iPhone came out and that was like in that, in that yes. time frame, right? Like it was yeah. towards the end of your doctoral degree. And I remember that coming out and being like, wow, this is, this is such a thing. And that was web 2.0. That was when, oh, it's the social web. The internet isn't just for transmitting information from one place to another. It's now a place for us to interact with each other. And there was so much optimism about things like Twitter um, yeah. and, and other platforms. I'm trying to remember that there was a tool that we used in addition to Moodle. I can't remember the name of it. Maybe you will. That was the, the, uh, before Google docs rightly. Is that what it was called? Uh, yeah. I think we did but use it, right, but it was a platform. I don't know if that's the right name of it, but, but it was one of the first tools that allowed you to simultaneously edit a document together. And it was like, wow, this is amazing. Like we can collaborate at the same time. So I don't have to wait until Ollie's done with his edits and and logs out I and I log in. We could actually do it simultaneously. But there was, yeah, I mean, it, it, there was so much promise and excitement back then. Um, and some of it, you know, brought really interesting things. And, and a lot of it brought things maybe we wish hadn't come along. So, um well, yeah. I, 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 when I successfully defended my dissertation, the gift I gave myself was an iPhone. So yeah. that's, and that was the first iPhone. I, I so we're talking 2008. Yeah. That's when I felt like, okay, you know, I, I, I wanted to give myself something. And so yeah. it was an iPhone and how that has changed how we interact with one another and mm-hmm. how we, uh, yeah, just everything. Yeah. And I just remember all of the promise that we saw and not that it's hasn't been realized. There's really some really cool opportunities that students have, but I think that as we get closer and closer to, you know, this virtual spaces that students are working and living in, we're also seeing all of the challenges and all of the opportunities that have not been realized. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I I don't want to be too hyperbolic about this, but, but, you know, I've, um, I'm been, I've always been interested in craftsmanship as a thing. And one of the cores of that is that, you know, people build things, we build things and often we build things because we, we want to build them because it's exciting to build them. And it's like, wow, this is going to be really cool. Um, and the the hyperbolic part was comparing this to Oppenheimer, right. And the, and the building of the bomb, like they loved the challenge of doing this thing. It was exciting. Like they were way out on the edge of something compelling and interesting. And then they built it. And then there was this understanding that, Oh, we built this thing now and there's no getting the genie back in the bottle. And I think, you know, it's similar with almost every technology, like the initial, you know, we're having this phase with AI now where we're super excited Yes. Um, or super are. scared. Some, some people are terrified. <laughs> um, there's, I think we've learned a little from previous technologies to say, well, w- there's probably a downside to this thing too, but, um, but there's a lot of optimism around it. And I think that some of that optimism is well-founded and will carry forward. And then some of the other parts of it, we just don't know about yet. And, um, and they could cut differently depending on decisions that we make about how we are willing to let AI develop. Um, but, but this idea of like, 
all technology is an unalloyed good and it always is you know we we should develop it because it's going to improve our lives it's like well that's not yeah. entirely true and there's plenty yeah. of evidence that that's not the way it works but in the moment it's hard because it's so exciting for the people that are developing this new thing they're just like oh this is amazing we're going to change the world with this and yeah you are but maybe not the way you think you're going to i think the other part that is challenging for me is the rate at which this stuff is happening. Yeah. Cause you know, whenever like this is a conversation I had with some folks yesterday, whenever the internet came out, it, it was a trickle mm -hmm. and we, it's it sort of like, okay, we have this internet. There's not a whole lot out there. There's and Oh, Hey, look, you know, we can now access it with, you know, these new browsers like Netscape. And, and so mm -hmm. little by little it, affected our practice and we were almost in this response cycle where as a change happened, we could respond to the change in time and it was slow and gradual and little by little it impacted practice. Oh, we have these, you know, laptops. Now you can, you can bring in a, a laptop cart and have the students get on laptops and then wheel them out when you don't want to. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but and it was gradual. It was gradual and it impacted practice in a gradual sort of way that allowed teachers to respond and and really think about things in a in sort of gradual, intentional, maybe thoughtful way, hopefully a thoughtful way. Mm. But we're in a different era with this AI stuff. And I am real I'm like in it. I'm in the AI mm -hmm. uh, world. And it is like changing so rapidly. And there and I don't know if the conversations are happening enough in schools to reflect the change that are happening as rapidly as they are. Yeah. No, I mean, I think we are in a different time in the sense that, um, you know, even if you look at 2007 um, with the phone coming out, I mean, the the access, the devices that we had that gave us access to things we're still in the infancy. I mean, now it is just astonishing um, that basically these tools are completely ubiquitous, at least in the U.S., um, not everywhere in the world, but most places in the world increasingly. Um, so you almost always have a device with you. And so the and people talk about that in terms of access, right? Oh, I can always access the Internet. I can always access information if I need if I have a question to answer. But it, it also works in reverse that those are portals into your life that allow the technology and, and other people access to you in unprecedented ways, right? I mean, if when we were kids, if you wanted to get, a, get into somebody's space, it was difficult, right? Like you could call them on the phone, on the landline phone, but if they weren't in the house, Back then, there weren't even answering machines, so the phone just rang, and then you hung up and said, "Oh, I guess Ollie's not around," you know, and and you could go to their house, but you know that the barrier to accessing other people was relatively high, and that yeah. is it's completely gone now. Like I can contact any person on the planet almost at any instant, um, right. and I can. I can intrude on their space whether they want me to or not. I can send them a text. I can send them a, I can call them. I can send them an email. I can FaceTime them. Like they're, it's just like 
it's very you have to be actively trying to keep people out of your life and even then it's difficult i i'm reading a a, a book about uh i have to bring up the title it's a it's about it's i think it's the title is nuts and bolts okay um and it talks about this the these not simple machines the small objects mm. that have revolutionized oh you know yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I talked about this. At, yeah, maybe you did. And, I've heard about it. Yeah, and it's written by an engineer, uh, mm. and she like digs into the magnet and the spring and the you it's know like seven it, inventions that changed seven the world inventions, the small inventions that changed yeah. the world. Actually, that's that's I think the tagline. I think it's nuts and bolts. The seven inventions that changed the world. Uh, the, the nail is one yeah, of them. The nail. The nail is a pretty uh, awesome yeah. chapter. But so in this, um, she's she was born in India. And so, and she talks a lot about how remote that is or was remote whenever she was growing up and when her parents were growing up and her uncles and, and grandparents and so on. And talks about how one of her, I think, uncles or something had moved to America at the time when, you know, telephones were still, you know, it was very difficult to call. And mm -hmm. so they would have to plan a day or two in advance. Right. For a phone call to happen. So they would like, hey, I yeah. would like to call somebody in India and they would have to plan the exchanges. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just mind blowing because you think right now, if you wanted to call a colleague, if you wanted to, if you had a colleague that you're working with in India and we both have friends who work there, we mm -hmm. could contact them and FaceTime them with right now. Yeah. We could probably set that up, you know, maybe with time differences, maybe a, bit, a little bit difficult, difficult, maybe they're sleeping or whatever. But like I routinely have conversations with people in Sweden. So do you yep. like at all over the world. And that is, I mean, so I think there's good things that we have to recognize here, yeah. but there's always, it's affordances and constraints. Yeah. Right. And right. unintended consequences. I think we need to throw that into the mix too. Yes. Yeah. The unintended consequences are real. Yes, for sure. Well, that right. seems that seems like a good transition. I don't know if that was your joy, but I don't know what. Well, I, I I will say I have given the nuts and bolts book away as gifts to people uh, over the holiday season because I've been. It's not something that you, at least not for me, a book that I've sat down and read from cover to cover in like mm -hmm. a day. They're yeah. like dense chapters, yeah, and so and they're long chapters, so. The magnet one is probably like 35 or 40 pages, and it talks about the magnet from like beginning, like how they find magnets, where like the different kinds of magnets and all the things historically where you find magnets and how you would interact with magnets throughout the day. Mm -hmm. It is a awesome book, and like I said, I've given it away to people. It's it's certainly a not a book for everybody, yeah. um, but – I'm pulling up the actual chapter. It is Nuts and Bolts, Seven Small Inventions That Changed the World. And the author is Roma Agarwal. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. heard about this book on 99% Invisible this mm -hmm. past summer. And mm -hmm. it was on my reading list for a bunch. I'm about like two thirds of the way through. When I'm like, you know, sitting around like going, okay, it's a, you know, I want something to read. I'll like tackle a chapter. Because yeah. they're like each chapter is independent. And and so there's seven, eight chapters, seven that just deal with a specific object. The nail one was fascinating. Yeah. Well, I remember, I think I heard the same 99% invisible. I remember about the nail chapter talking about in, you know, in colonial times, or maybe it was in England in that same time period. But if you had a house and you were moving, you had to move, 
you would burn the house down so that and you collect could the nails. hit the nails and bring them with you so that when you built your next house, you'd have all the nails. Like that's how valuable nails were because they were artisan created, right? I, you know, now we have machines that just produce nails. They cost yep. not even a penny. But back then you had to have a blacksmith individually make every nail. So they were incredibly valuable. So it's just yeah. fascinating how that. Yeah, it is. Changes. It is a great read. It is a great read. Yeah. And, and it seems appropriate for this, you know, in that sense of like, how does, how does, how do we think about technology differently? Like, how do we think about the blackboard differently now than we did when it was first put into classrooms? Like when yeah. it was first put in the classrooms, it's like, this is revolutionary. It's going to change everything. Now it's like, can we get these things out of here? Because they completely orient yeah. people just in one direction. I wonder if there's like a, you know, a complimentary text that could be written the seven small inventions that changed education. Interesting. I don't know. I don't, or, I don't know. It might be the seven <laughs> small inventions that didn't change education. <laughs> right. We'll or ruined education right. or. <laughs> well, yeah. Just didn't like, you know, all these things that we thought like, Oh, the movie, the movie projector is going to change everything about education. Access to television in school is, you know, it's like, well, none of that stuff really did anything. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah. that was your joy. We snuck it in there. You, you started talking are, about it before it was even officially yeah. joy time. This has really been an old man episode. It's come down to like you and I shaking our fist at clouds. Mm, yeah. Well, uh, you know, and our own clouds like the yeah. iPhone and the internet. And, Urgh, uh, hey, you kids. <laughs> before that, life was good. And yeah. Easy. Back and in 2007. Yeah. <laughs> the um, dawn of the light bulb. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> So um, my my joy uh, this this uh, week is also a book. It's by Walter Mosley. It's called The Right Mistake. Um, and Walter Mosley is a um, is an is a novelist. Um, I think exclusively. I don't know if he's written anything that was not a novel, but he's probably best known for the Easy Rollins books, which a lot a couple of them were made into movies with Denzel Washington. Um, but this book, the right mistake is, um, a little bit different and was sort of right up my alley. I, it had been on my list for a while to read and I hadn't gotten to it. So, um, o- over the end of the holiday season here and into the beginning of the year, I, I finally got to it. So it's, it's about, um, it's about a guy who is a convicted felon. He's a murderer and rapist. And this is sort of right up at the beginning of the book. And he's been released from prison. And his name is Socrates Fortlow. Um, uh, and he starts a, I don't know what, I mean, he, he ends up calling it, it's the big nickel is the place that it happens. And the big table is, is in this building, but really it's like a salon or a school. Or if you think of the traditional old Greek notion of a university, like a group of people who just sort of talk about issues. And so he brings together the novel is about him, his life sort of post incarceration while he's developing this group of people and and the impact that those people have on his lives and on each other's lives. And it's just, I mean, it's very much a book about the value of education in the form of people having conversations about things. And he specifically brings together lots of people who disagree with each other, who don't have the same opinions about about the issues of the day, and then they try and talk about them. And I think 
you know, in many respects, it goes back to what we were talking about here and that it's it's a complete reversal of how how the Internet has impacted us, because the Internet now has made it so that we mostly just talk to people that we agree with and listen to people that we agree with and consume information from people that we agree with. And um, and his his whole uh, orientation is like if we're going to solve problems, we got to be able to listen to each other and talk to each other about these issues, even when we have very different notions. So um, it's yeah, it's it's a really interesting book. It is somewhere between uh, a novel and a philosophical treatise on. It sounds like it. The importance of of talk and and community, but um, but it's really yeah, it's really good. I I really enjoyed it, and uh, and I read it much faster than I thought I would. It, it you know usually there has to be a lot of like plottiness or something to keep you engaged with a book, at least for me. This one, yeah, you know, like action stuff going on. Um, But this one isn't like that, really. I mean, stuff does go on, but, um, you know, there's a lot of him sort of uh, interacting with with the system largely. Right. Like or larger scale system, the police and the justice system. And um, but uh, and it's a lot about him and his friends and, and these people who become his friends who are initially just part of this salon. But it's really yeah, it's a nice book. So, and, sounds uh, cool. Yeah, it's certainly if you want to understand the value of face-to-face communication when it comes to learning, it's certainly an example of that. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Covered a lot of territory from lot, lots of different, like, you know, we dug into the technology a bit, but, yeah. you know, we are trying to focus on you know, physical digital learning spaces and ended up with books. That's a lot of, oh, yeah. that's, yeah. that's a huge, you know. Yep. Well, one of, yeah. one of these days we'll it's a get journey. to the hidden I, potential. It's a journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we should, I think we should put some of those on the, the roadmap, yeah. uh, you know, some of the other chapters, because we talked about the discomfort chapter, but it's still one of those things that's sitting on my desk. That yeah. something I, uh, well, uh, it just reminded me because there's a cartoon. He has a bunch of cartoons built into the book and there's one cartoon, probably it looks like it might've been a New Yorker cartoon where there's a mom and a, and a son and a mom and a son sitting together on a bench and the first two are looking at their phones and the second two are look are reading books and the mom who's on the phone turns to the woman who's who's reading a book and says i've been trying to get my kids to read but i how did you do it and you know it's just this like well yeah. you know it's it, it starts by them seeing your reading and modeling and, yeah so reading books uh you know it's a thing yeah no, no doubt my friend no doubt, no doubt. all right well We'll catch you next time. In between. We'll see you then. Bye now. 